As of 2015, in the UK, there was a massive carrot that was then whisked away and not replaced with anything. The old sticks and carrots. Just over two years ago, the UK was about to commence one of the biggest global efforts in history to reduce carbon emissions. But as Beck Cunningham here says, not all went according to plan. There was money promised by the UK government. I'm going to go ahead. They'd done the research. They had everything going on the ground, things built, etc. And then it was just before an election... November 2015, they pulled over a billion pounds of funding. The energy giant Drax all of a sudden pulled out of its plans to develop the world's first power plant to produce negative emissions, called the White Rose Expansion Project. Now, negative emissions is a pretty steep goal because what it involves is the actual removal of CO2 from the atmosphere and returning emissions levels to that of what it was before the Industrial Revolution. Pretty steep. But still, many saw Drax pulling out as a massive fumble and step back because not only was the White Rose power plant built and raring to go, essentially, but it would have stopped up to 90% of the plant's CO2 emissions from 2020, reducing its emissions from 23 million tonnes a year to just over 2 million. So why did Drax pull out? And what happened to the White Rose expansion project? Welcome to a new year of Think Sustainability, a show where we look at practical solutions for a better planet. My name is Jake Morecambe. Today, we're talking about a technology that could put a massive plug in our global carbon emissions. But we're looking at how a lack of political will and financial backing is keeping this technology on the bench. But before we get into all that, it's back to the UK and back to Rebecca Cunningham. In 2013, Beck paid a visit to two different places on the opposite sides of the UK. One was on the northeast coast called Teesside and the other on the west coast. And the other location we went to was just outside of Blackpool in Lancashire. Both of these areas had been picked out for new developments, developments including the same technology that were to go ahead for the White Rose expansion project, something called carbon capture and storage. But Beck wasn't there to scout out the land or discuss the technology herself. Beck was there to speak to industries, state and federal governments, local councils, the local community, about their thoughts and concerns when it came to carbon capture and storage in their region. But when she got there... When we went into Blackpool, I had a very odd experience um, as I was trying to recruit people to interview... No one would speak to us. No one would speak to us. Got a few academics and that was it. And Why didn't they want to speak to you? Well, a few people said they weren't allowed and that made me feel weird because these were people in local council in Lancashire. I then went... I found someone in the council who was like the press person, the media liaison slash hr type of person and I asked if there'd been any information given to staff across 
you know, at any point in time to say that they weren't allowed to speak about carbon capture storage. And I said, absolutely not. Straight off the bat, Beck had been getting mixed messages. So to understand what was going on, she had to look back. And what she found was that Blackpool has a history with something called fracking. And because of the seismic earthquake that had happened in 2012 in Blackpool, people were just very afraid to talk about anything that was below the surface. In 2011, there were two earthquakes in Blackpool as a result of hydraulic fracturing in the region, also known as fracking. With fracking, huge volumes of water are injected into rock in the ground, which fractures them, and then out comes a natural gas, which is what the frackers are after. It's not actually the fracturing of the rocks that caused the 2.3 and 1.5 magnitude earthquakes in 2011, but the water moving through the rocks, loosening them up and pushing them apart. These earthquakes weren't devastating to the area, but they made the locals uncomfortable, at the very least. After a few weeks in Blackpool, Beck was able to wrangle together enough community members to attend a focus group with a number of fracking and CCS experts. And here, they would mull over what CCS might mean for their hometown. We rocked up to a community hall and spent a morning, and there were people who lived in the area hadn't had any affiliation with any hardcore uh, environmental groups and didn't work in extraction. And most people didn't know about it. They knew about fracking. In both locations, there was always someone at the focus group who wanted to talk about fracking and had something to get off their chest. It was something they wanted to share. And share what exactly about it? Negative opinions, positives? Yeah, always negative and concern. And so the concern about carbon capture storage was explosions. Would it explode? And what what does that mean for that for their place? It was clear to Beck that the citizens of Blackpool didn't want to mess with what was underground. But what was also clear is that those who were at least familiar with CCS didn't know how it actually worked. Carbon capture and storage is about capturing carbon and depositing it somewhere other than the atmosphere, which typically involves containing it from a source emitting it, catching it, and then injecting that CO2 into underground rock. However, that rock needs to be... Porous yet permeable rock. Blackpool was picked out for CCS based on the presence of saline aquifers in the area. And saline aquifers are a layer of underground, permeable rock that has a high potential for storing CO2. What could happen here is carbon would be captured in one place, funneled through a series of pipelines, and then injected into a saline aquifer in Blackpool. The tricky thing about CCS, though, is the technology and process is different every time. And there's not only the storing side, but also how you capture the carbon in the first place. And in Teesside, that's what they were mulling over, how to capture the carbon, given where they are on the East Coast. There's a massive amount of industrial activity. However, the overall goals remain the same. 
preventing an overflow of carbon into the atmosphere and storing it underground for what could be millions and millions of years. We had a cup of tea and a biscuit, and Andy walked everyone through the process of carbon capture and storage in a much more detailed, had audio and visual sort of a ex- extravaganza of how it occurs in the field. Beck is talking about Dr Andy Chadwick from the British Geological Society. He was doing the scientific rundown on CSS at the forum. Then he'd leave the room because we didn't want having an expert in the room make people not feel like they could share their concerns or thoughts. And by the end of each focus group, people were like, oh, that seems fine. It's not going to explode. It's going to save the environment. That's good. It's not going to hurt the animals in the ocean. No, good. 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 That's a good thing. And in Teesside, they were that response plus, if it happened in the area, that would create jobs and we want jobs. So we know that our place, Teesside, has a lot of heavy industry and if it was considered to help clean up the industry and create jobs, people were well happy. Well happy. Beck and her team had done their job. They'd okayed CCS in both Teesside and Blackpool with the local community, and in doing so, acquired a social licence to operate an SLO, which, according to Beck, is one of the four necessary steps in implementing CCS. But flash forward to today, some four years later, neither Teesside or Blackpool have begun any CCS activity. Teesside is continuing heavy industry, as per usual, and in Blackpool, there have even been moves to open up more fracking in the region, pushing CCS to the side. So what happened? Or more accurately, what didn't happen? And how do the locals of Blackpool feel after opening up to a new technology, only for things to go back to what they were before. That's coming up next on Think Sustainability. In January of last year, a site on Preston New Road in Lancashire was given the go-ahead to begin fracking. The site became a hot spot for protests over the last year and saw two court cases brought to the High Court against fracking in the region, both of which were tossed aside. This particular protest at Preston New Road back in April of last year, it looks as though there are equal number police officers as there are protesters. This wasn't a one-off. These protests continued into the new year, where even as recently as late January, a number of arrests were made where protesters were willfully obstructing a highway, one including a 73-year-old pensioner. While fracking in Blackpool was getting the green light, there's been no mention of carbon capture and storage coming anytime soon. Over the past few years, this has echoed across the entire country, where in the case of the Drax power plant, any momentum for CCS had been stopped altogether. Rebecca Cunningham is obviously concerned by not having CCS, we aren't tackling ongoing carbon emissions. But there's something else to this. 
by not following through with our CCS plans, we are actually going against a report written by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change a few years back, which placed CCS as the next crucial step. And in the current、um, synthesis work from the again the IPCC reports from 2014, they include to stay below. Um, our two degrees, as agreed in Paris in 2015, or to pursue the well below two degrees or 1.5 degrees of of temperature shift, the scenarios all include a lot of carbon capture storage. Why did they write in carbon capture and storage? Like, where did that come from? Was it just something they're like, look, this could、mm. work? Well, it can work. It's a proven technology. There's an issue around. Well, there's a couple of things: cost, scalability. Social license to operate with communities, and political will. So we have a couple of things to unpick here, but let's look at them one at a time, starting with cost. So back when Drax called it quits on the White Rose project, they pulled out one billion pounds from the plant's future expansion. This decision was made because they thought CCS was actually going to lose them a lot of money, and that's because as of 2015, in a UK setting, to have either a coal-fired power plant or a gas power plant fitted with two-scale carbon capture storage. Even though you can take over ninety percent of the CO two out of the atmosphere and store it safely, the cost to the power plant they would lose approximately thirty percent of their fiscal revenue. So the fiscal cost of CCS has always been a barrier. And why is that? Is it just the cost of the technology? Why would it be、oh, so expensive the for them?、Uh, it's the cost of getting the the carbon dioxide to a state that it can be. Stored, and then you've got transport.、Right? So, say you've got a coal-fired power station. When you burn coal, obviously CO two is one of the things that come out, but there's a lot of other heavy metals and other gases that are all included in that output. So, all the other gases and chemicals have to be stripped out, and that all costs energy to to undertake that process, and and that costs money, and then the equipment itself. The next issue, and perhaps most contentious, is the idea of scalability. Since first being posed as an idea, CCS has been dealt a lot of flack. Many of these arguments are based on the fact: why would you invest in such an expensive technology that's only capturing carbon rather than cutting down on the sources that emit it? But according to Beck, carbon capture and storage always has and always will be called a bridging technology. As we move away from fossil fuels, and when it comes to using it on an industrial scale, again there is some extraction, even when you're looking at concretes and steel, etc. But are we going to? We just have to look around, and we see concrete and steel going up everywhere. Are we going to stop using those materials today? Highly unlikely. In my back of my mind, there's well, not even the back; it's in the front. And middle is there's always going to be communities that are reliant on it as well. There's families with a parent or someone who's that's their job, and it, from Monday or from Friday to Monday, you're not going to change from one job into another and be able to maintain sort of structure and support for you know. There's an impact on livelihoods that I think needs to be considered, and that's why it was 
always positioned as a bridging technology. And because we haven't yet reached these, mm. is it because of this apprehension of the technology or apprehension on behalf of particular industries or private bodies not investing mm. kind of their efforts into making sure this works small scale, let alone some of the biggest power plants in the world? Mm. I think there's a mixture of things. I think because it's, it seems quite complicated, there's a lot of bits to put together. It's not just extract and go or grab and inject. And I think we've been much better as humans. We're much more familiar with extracting and moving stuff from one place to another than, you know, getting something and, and storing it somewhere else. Do you know what I mean? Or having it, like, getting it and then having to do something to it and storing it and then transporting that yeah. or transporting then storing yeah. lots of steps. Yeah. So we've been very good at, you know, extracting gold making, you know, moving it around, making stuff out of it, always making more money out of it in sort of reasonably short term. I think there's still a bit of a existential crisis slash industry reticence to monetarise that. So uh, there's still a reticence as to who pays for this to be cleaner, who pays for this better environment fiscally. We'll all pay for it environmentally. As much as we've seen a pushback against carbon capture and storage, whether it's in the UK or even here in Australia, something also to come out of this is the fact more of us, more people like you and me, are aware of CCS. But not just being aware of CCS in particular, but that there are means out there which can help us reduce our global CO2 emissions, which can help reduce our impact, our footprint. And knowing that we as community members, we as people have a platform, we do have a voice, a voice that we should use when we think that something should be done or when something shouldn't be. I remember in the 90s, because like I said, I grew up in with heavy industry, outside of Gladstone, there was, there's a lot of industry. We're talking bauxite, there's a coal-fired power plant, there's a aluminium um Refinery, And you grew up near that? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Fun times. Yeah. And there's a whole bunch of other petrochemical companies as well. And there was one, and there was a shale oil plant. I think it was called Shale Oil was the name of the company in the 90s. And they specifically said to the community, and the community around them was near on the way to Mount Larkham, and they had a lot of pawpaws and fruit trees and all that sort of stuff. And they said to farmers, you won't see us, you won't hear us, you won't smell us. And lo and behold, they were seen, they were heard, and they were smelt. And they lost their social licence to operate in that community. And what was a pilot shale oil project, you hear about shale oil happening a lot in the US and Canada. So this was a pilot project in central Queensland. They were shunned from the community um, and ended up packing up shop in a couple of years and lost a lot of money. But again, it's that tension between the economics, political will, and as we shift into different environmental futures, hopefully positive, how we do that on a community level. And social licence is a very, it can be a little fickle mm. uh, in that what people are okay with one day, if that trust is broken, if that respect is broken. That have anything but a social licence willing exactly. you to operate. Exactly. Exactly. 
Dr. Rebecca Cunningham, Research Principal and Social Scientist in the Institute for Sustainable Futures at the University of Technology, Sydney. This has been Think Sustainability. If you enjoyed the show, make sure to subscribe to us. You can find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. You just need to search for Think Sustainability. Also jump on our website, check out some earlier shows, 2SCR.com forward slash Think Sustainability. This show is made possible with the support of 2SCR Radio, the University of Technology Sydney, and is heard around Australia via the Community Radio Network. My name's Jake Morecambe, and I'll catch you next time.